0: Let's read together here uh, the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's Word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. I wonder when it is uh, the last time... That you felt like your world was turned upside down. This is an interesting uh, story in Acts chapter 17. And, you know, Acts is basically, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but it's basically the story of after, after Jesus' resurrection and after he ascends into heaven, how um, the disciples then go out and carry out the Great Commission, basically. And, and the book of Acts tells us how the gospel spread throughout um, all Jerusalem and all Samaria uh, and all, um, and then into Asia Minor and, and into the world, right? Uh, in Acts chapter 17, we get this story of Paul and Silas. They end up in Thessalonica, and they're preaching the gospel. Um, and we, we read there in Acts 17 that they were reasoning from the Scriptures and they were explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom we proclaim to you is the Christ. And we read there that there were Jews, that there were Greeks, and that there were leading women in the city that believed the gospel, right? But as everywhere, uh, as a lot we see in the book of Acts, as people are going uh, place to place preaching the gospel, opposition rose up. And we get these Jewish leaders that actually end up inciting a mob against uh, those preaching the gospel. And they can't find Paul and Silas, but they round up a few of the Christians and they drag them to the city authorities. And this is what they tell them. These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come to our city also. I love that line. For Basically, what we learn there is that for those who witnessed the spread of the gospel and the building of the church in those early stages after Jesus left this earth, they viewed it as the world being turned upside down. What was it about the gospel that people said the world was being turned upside down because of it? I would suggest to you that tonight we get a view of what it is about the gospel that turns our world upside down. Paul gives us a hint tonight in this passage. He wants us to remember something. That's how he opens this passage. Remember, he opened his letter in chapter 1 with this like outpouring of praise and prayer to God and who God was and what He's done for us in Christ. Uh, the second half of chapter 1, which we would have looked at last week if we had had RUF, um, he prays that the, the Ephesian, the believers, would know the realities of what God has done. And now he's going to talk about exactly what it looks like in our life, in our hearts When God saves us, okay. So I want to look at three. I want to look at the passage tonight with three questions. Uh, They're in there in your handout for you. What were we? What did God do? And why did He do it? What were we? What did God do? And why did He do it? What were we? Well, Paul says we were apart from Christ, the walking dead. That's what he says. and he's not just talking about like one little segment of culture or population he says all of us all of us before we came to jesus or if you are not in jesus we're the walking dead Okay? Uh, it's 1968, the movie The Night of the Living Dead came out. Uh, most people trace the modern-day, like, zombie craze back to that movie in 1968. Ever since then, like, the zombie—there's uh, just something about zombies, right? We can't get enough of them. The last few years, there's movie after movie, TV show after TV show. The, one of the best TV shows on right now is The Walking Dead. Um, I enjoy that show. Um it, 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 zombies have covered every genre. Usually you would think it's confined to horror, but we've seen comedy movies with zombies. We've seen a romantic comedy. Uh, what was the name of the romantic comedy? Warm yeah, Warm Bodies. I actually I thought that was going to be stupid, and I actually enjoyed it. Um, zombies are all over the place, okay? Um you know, there are, there are numbers of fantastical staple characters when it comes to horror movies. Think like vampires and well, werewolves, and those are popular in their own right. But there's something about zombies, I think, I mean, at least for me, and I, I think the reason that drives the fact that we can always have more movies about zombies is there's something about zombies that I, I think it unsettles us because there's part of us that thinks, like, could that really happen? So when it comes to vampires and werewolves, we're like, well, that would never happen, right? But when it comes to zombies, like it creeps us out because there's an element of what if that really happened that gives us the heebie-jeebies. And for some reason, we keep coming back for more. It's actually a com- uh, it's a concept. Um, <laughs> I looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, zombies, the, you know, the dead uh, coming back to life. I mean, this is a concept that, that dates well back into an- the ancient world, into ancient history, into ancient mythology. It's not something new. We're fascinated with it. Paul here says... To open this chapter, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead, okay? In this first three verses, it's kind of like Paul, calm down. You get this litany of our helpless and hopeless condition apart from Jesus. Right? Uh, we're walking in trespasses and sins. We were following the cor- course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Like right? Paul's really being a downer here, right? Apart from Christ, we were nothing but dead men walking. That's what Paul says. And the natural question is why does he need to bring this up? Why, why bring this up? Um, and I, I want to think about that just for a second here. You know, I, I think all of us, especially your, your generation, we all have this sense of injustice in the world, that there is injustice in the world. There's this sense within all of us that all is not right. That there are things that need to be made right. That there are things that are wrong. And I think that there is nothing more tangible. There's nothing that brings that home in a more personal way than death. Right, death is all around us. Death is a reality; we know it is. But you know, in our culture, we're in large part anesthetized to it. Um, you know, I, I was 21, maybe 21, 22 before someone even relo- remotely close to me died. Um, uh, some of you have known death at much earlier ages and much in, in tragic impersonal ways. Death is all around us; we know it's a reality. But one thing is true: is that when we encounter death. There's no mistaking it, and there's no forgetting it. In whatever form you've encountered death in your life, whether maybe the only like real form of death you've seen is like a video on YouTube. I don't know. But there's no mistaking it when you see it, and there's no forgetting it either, right? Death is a surefire way of getting the sense that all is not right in the world. There's nobody that's okay with it. Death is not okay. Paul says that apart from Jesus there is something gravely wrong with us. Apart from Jesus we are dead. And like physical death, physical death leads to physical disintegration, our spiritual death means that we are living if we are apart from, if we are apart from Christ in a spiritual disintegration. And you know and here's the thing we get we read something like this from Paul and we think and this goes against the the grain of all of our natural impulses because we think, okay, look, I've sure I have shortcomings, um, I, I fall short in lots of areas, I've messed up royally in areas of my life, but but come on, dead. I mean, we were dead. Um, you know, I've always had a sense of God or a sense of the spiritual uh, or a sense that I need to be good or try to live a good life, right? Um, that's what we think. But I don't misunderstand Paul here. There's a reason why he calls it a the walking dead. It was a living death. We were living in death is what Paul says apart from Christ. Uh, you think about Ephesus. I've said this a little bit before. Ephesus was a sprawling city. It housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, a grand temple uh, to the goddess Diana. Okay? Uh, the activities at this temple were lively. Okay, they would be fit for a documentary on late night uh, Cinemax, if that gives you any kind of a picture. Um, people from all over uh, Asia Minor came and flocked to Ephesus uh, to worship and pay homage to Diana at this temple. Uh, actually, when the gospel started taking root in Ephesus, people stopped buying idols. And so the idol makers uh, got together and they started a riot against the gospel because it was disrupting their business. Okay, Paul looks. Paul's thinking about all of that that happened in Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts, and he says it was death. He's reminding the Ephesians that all of that before it was death. Okay, um, he points back to it as a living death, and the way he puts it here, look at verses one through three. It's like a bondage. It's a slavery. Uh, we're in, when we were apart from Christ, when we were walking dead, we were enslaved to a pattern. What was that pattern? The course of this world. Okay? Usually when we think about, like, the worldly things, we, we think of people saying, like, you know, you got to stay away from the world, right? Um, but there is a real sense that there is a pattern that we were enslaved to. The course of this world. It's talking about a world or society that is um, lived without any reference to God. We're enslaved to a person. He okay, calls it the Prince of the Power of the Air. Okay, this makes us uncomfortable, right? When we talk about the Devil or the Satan. Was the greatest trick the Devil ever pulled, making the world believe he didn't exist? Scripture is clear that there is a personal, malevolent force who is actively seeking our destruction. He has authority in this world. He's called the God of this age. Now, does he have all authority? No, because Jesus has been exalted, right, and sits at the right hand of God. Um, Paul will come back to this in Ephesians 6. We're enslaved to the passions of our flesh, right, Um, the desires of our body and mind. Now, Paul is not saying that the, the desires of your body and mind are inherently sinful, okay? Think about this. We naturally have appetites for food for sleep, for sex. Okay? These are things that God created and created us for, and they're gifts, and they are good things, and they can be good things. But when we become enslaved to them, when they rule over us, what happens? When they rule over us, our appetite for food becomes gluttony, right? When we're enslaved to them, our appetite for sleep becomes sloth. Hello, college. Well, at least for me. Maybe not y'all. Y'all are always doing stuff. Um... When you're enslaved by your appetite for sex, it becomes lust, right? And it leads to destruction. But most of all, the biggest thing Paul says here about our walking death is that we're born under the penalty of death. Look at what he says in verse 3 there. And this makes us uncomfortable. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. Psalm 51 Verse 5, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The world is not like this, this part that Paul says here. Because most people would like to believe that we're born clean slates, but Paul says by nature we are born as children of wrath. Meaning we are justly deserving of his wrath and displeasure because we are sinful By nature. And the reason it makes us uncomfortable is because we think of human wrath. But God's wrath is not human wrath. God doesn't just flippantly fly off the handle. That's not how God operates. God is holy and God is righteous and God is good. So His wrath is His holy and righteous opposition to evil. We are born under that because of who we are. Talk about turning your world upside down. So here's the thing, the gospel tells us how God saves us, but saves us from what is the question. The gospel also tells us about our need, the reality of who we are apart from Jesus, and Paul says it's that we're dead. It goes against our every natural inclination. of how our culture works, how we normally operate right. Because everything around us tells us you need the right process, you need the right formula, and then you need to plug in the right amount of effort, and then you get the end product. So if you're coming up short, you're just not applying it right, or you don't have the right formula to fix it right. If that were true, Peyton Manning would never have a bad game. Okay, we all know how that went a week ago, uh, or a few days ago. Peyton Manning puts more effort, more formula, more strategy into his craft than anybody ever has in the sport of football, okay? The dude has bad games. Um, the most Peyton Manning stat ever was he set the completion record in the Super Bowl. And they got killed. Poor Peyton Manning. He already has a ring and millions of dollars. so He's not poor. Um, Paul says, on our own, spiritually speaking, we are dead. That's what Paul says. You know, tragically, I'm getting really tired of awesome actors dying, to be honest with you. But Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, passed away a few days ago. Uh, And there was one of my favorite articles that I read that kind of just was kind of homage to him and his his acting and how great his acting really was. And this is how it ended. He he was talking about how um, Hoffman usually did a really good job of playing characters uh, that were kind of maybe stereotype bad guys, but he made them deep. He made them complex, and he made it where you really had to explore the character to get to the root of who they were. And this is how he sums up the article. He says, Hoffman did not care if we liked any of these sad specimens. The point was to make us believe them and to recognize in them and in him a truth about ourselves that we might otherwise have preferred to avoid. The point was to see in them, to see in him, a truth about ourselves that we might otherwise Have preferred to avoid Okay Basically he's saying that there's a truth In all these bad characters That's in us that we prefer not to see And Hoffman was so great Um, And the reason that we were drawn to these characters Is because we realized that there was something true Of the human condition in those characters And Hoffman always brought that out Paul is not telling us that this is all we were Paul is not telling us that we were as bad as we possibly could be It's not what he's saying What he's saying Is that apart from Jesus You needed rescue Apart from Jesus You could do nothing Because you were dead So let's move on What, what did God do? Alright if, if that was our status What did God do? Well in a word He saved us What Paul is getting at here is God saved us, okay? The two greatest words or the greatest phrase in all of the New Testament is right there in verse 4. But God. But God. Paul's not being a downer, okay? He's not trying to put his readers in their place. He's not... um, trying to make us feel bad about ourselves. What he's doing is he's drawing attention to the fact that God has done what you and I could not do. He saved us. More specifically, he made us alive, okay? And you think about it, salvation, salvation. we don't claim, you know, Christianity doesn't claim this. Salvation is not a unique concept to Christianity. It's not a unique concept um, to the gospel. But what is unique to the gospel in regards to salvation is that we are solely recipients of it. There's nothing in the gospel that says do this to get this as far as rewarding it or gaining it on your own. We're solely recipients. We receive it through faith. There's been a lot of analogies about what salvation is, like who we are apart from it, why we need it, and how we get it. Um, and I found one that's probably the most common one that I've heard all my life that was in a Tim Tebow article. Um, There's this big, long article article on uh, Sports Illustrated Online called The Book of Tebow. And it was a great article. I love Tim Tebow. It was very well done. But in the early part of the article, he's, the, the author's trying to talk about Tim Tebow's faith, and this is what he says. He said, Tim Tebow had been praying since he was a boy. At age five, he was caught in a riptide off the Florida coast, and he was swept into the Atlantic Ocean. His older brother, Peter, swam out and held him until a lifeguard pulled them in. After that, Tim lay awake at night, wondering where his soul would go if he died. You see, the Tebow's were Christians, and they believed some particular things about heaven. You couldn't earn or buy your way in. You would never be good enough on your own. You were drowning, flailing in the waves, and somewhere up there God was watching, listening, waiting to reach down and pick you up. You had only to ask and believe and accept the gift of salvation. This is what Christians mean when they talk about grace. I don't think that is what the Bible means when it talks about grace. And if anything, nowhere in the Bible does, does, does the New Testament picture God as just hover, hovering over us, waiting for us to do something. Everything Paul has said at the opening of this book is about what God has done definitively. God is not watching you drown, waiting for you to make the first move. And also, I think about this, if that were the case, why would anyone refuse it? I wonder, why would anybody refuse that? What does Paul say here? Paul says that God has done something that you and I could never do. He saved you. He made you alive. You go back, if you have your Bibles up, you go back um, to passage we would have looked at last week. Uh, last week in verse 19 he, talks, he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places. Okay? Now look at verses 5 and 6 tonight. We were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up with Him. And we were seated in the heavenly places. So do you see the flow of the book? What Paul says is Jesus was dead. God made him alive and raised him and seated him in heavenly places. So too, we were dead. God made us alive. God raised us up. God seated us in heavenly places. This is just the point I'm trying to get at. God wasn't waiting for you to do anything. He did something you couldn't do. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, what is true of Him is true of you. The death He died, you died to sin. The life He lives, you live to Christ. If we died with Him in a death like His, how much more are we raised with Him in a resurrection like His, Paul says in Romans 6. He died for you, doing what you never could or could have done for yourself. He saved you. He made you alive. That's what Paul says here. We're going to ask, why did he do it? This is the final one before wrapping it up. Why did he do it? Two things. Grace and works. Interesting bedfellows, right? Why did God save us? Grace and works. It's kind of like Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus. We know they both exist, but has anyone ever seen them in the same room together? Right? Right? Grace and works. Just a question. Just a thought. Grace first. Look what he says. But God, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Why does He love me? Because He loves me. Why did He save me? Because He loves me. He doesn't love me... Get this. God doesn't love me because of Jesus. I know that God loves me because of Jesus. Get that? God doesn't love me because of Jesus. I know that God loves me because of Jesus. But go further. Further than He says... Um, In verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So get this, in chapter 1, in verse 19, he said, in raising Jesus, he was going to display to the world the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now in chapter 2, he says, in us, he's going to show the world the immeasurable riches of his grace. What God has done for you and me, what God is doing in you and me, displays to the world the riches of His grace. At the same time, Paul talks about works. An interesting way to wrap it up, there down at the end, 9 and 10, he says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So see how the passage flows together. We used to walk in death, in trespasses and sins. Now we walk in righteousness, in newness of life. So you see, salvation is creation. It's being a new creation. Paul says explicitly elsewhere, we are new creations if we are in Christ. We are God's work of art, His workmanship. Have you ever been moved by a work of art, like a, a book maybe, A great song, a great movie. For me, I don't know what it was. You know, it comes on TV a lot now and it doesn't seem like it was that great. But the first time I saw Avatar in 3D, I was just like, I almost fell out of my seat because I felt like I was in the movie. It was so awesome. All these colors and creatures and 3D and I don't know, I was tripping or something. But it was, I was utterly blown away. I looked at the movie Avatar as far as like how they made it and how they put it on screen, and I said, This is a work of art. God looks at you and me and He's blown away. Because you and I are his work of art. And the truth of salvation that's freely offered to us in Christ, it's not a shot in the arm. Okay? It's not something just to get you going. It's not merely a new beginning. It's a new creation. It's life when you didn't have any. And not only is it life, it's life abundant. It's life then that points constantly and squarely back to the one who gave it because we're his workmanship. So just to wrap all this together, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us then? Just three things I think of here off the bat. The first is this, you cannot live your life if you're in Christ in constant fear of failure. Living in Christ means that you are delivered from living a life in constant fear of failure because you are not bound to live or die based on how well you do in college. You are not bound to live or die based on who your friends are or how many you have. You are not bound to live or die on what kind of job you get when you're done with college. You're not bound to live or die on who you marry when you get done with college, whether or not you even get married. You are bound, your life is entirely founded on God's love for you in Jesus because He's made you alive. And that's it. The second thing is this, I think. You can truly, truly love other people where they are. Think about this. You're freed, on one hand, from the burden of fixing people. Because you can't. Right? But also, at the same time, you're free to love them where you are. Actually, this demands that you love people where they are. It demands that you love people in their awkwardness. It demands that you love people despite their smugness. Demands that you love people despite their rejection, despite their dorkiness maybe, despite their jockness. I don't know. Whatever makes you mad. Demands that we love people where we are. Why? Because what this tells us is God loved us where we were. And he made us alive. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans 5. The last thing is this, though. If you are in Christ, for all of us that are in Christ, what it means is each and every one of us has an unbelievable testimony. Because each one of us was dead, and now we're alive. Think about that. Luke chapter 3. Uh, Luke tells us uh, about John the Baptist in his ministry baptizing, uh, preaching and performing a baptism of repentance. And we're told that people are flocking down to the Jordan to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. And we're told that there's some Jews gathering there. Um, And their problem was they were already sure of their salvation. Uh, John is telling them that something's coming and they better get ready, therefore they might should repent. And there were some questioning him because they thought their salvation was already sure because of who they were, because of what they, what they were born. They were born, uh, descended from Father Abraham. And John tells those people, he says this. He says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see the beauty of the story. God was able to raise up children for Abraham children of faith from stones but he didn't choose stones he chose you and me and anyone who hears this good news for any and all who hear these words the offer to you is life you know that great sunday school story in ezekiel 37 that the prophet ezekiel is taken to a valley of full of bones You remember what God tells him? God tells Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Tonight, in the hearing of this gospel and everywhere that this gospel is preached, dead people are coming to life. If you are hearing it, the offer to you is life. The thing is, God is not waiting for you to do something. He's already done it in Christ. He's here. And wouldn't you hear that tonight? Wouldn't you believe it? Wouldn't you repent? Wouldn't you turn away from the death that you've been wandering in? question from Paul is, wouldn't you live for a grace like that? It might just turn your world upside down. Perhaps all you see in your life is death and brokenness. But here's the good news. What Paul is saying is that this God is about the business of bringing the dead to life. That's it. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we long to live. We long to have life. If we're honest, Father, we know that we're searching for it anywhere we can find it. You've promised to give us life. You've given us the words of life. We pray that you would give them to us tonight. Father, that you would open our hearts and that there you would write the truth of this grace indelibly upon our hearts. That we would hear them that we would know them, that we would take them in, that they would be life to us. Maybe we don't even know exactly what that looks like tonight, but you do. Because you're the kind of God that can bring life to stones or to dry bones. Perhaps most of us, that's us tonight, Father. We ask that you would work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.